Good morning, church. Man, I'm not this tall. You ever um, been misjudged by somebody? Yeah? Have you ever misjudged somebody? Bet we have. Um, but probably not like Dick Rowe. Uh, Dick Rowe was uh, one of the most famous talent scouts in the music industry a generation ago. And in 1962, an unpolished quartet auditioned for Rowe and left him exceedingly unimpressed. In addition to rejecting uh, the band's desire for a recording contract, uh, Rowe is purportedly to have said, uh, bands with guitars are on their way out. A year later, this band had their number one hit on Billboard's Top 50 chart. Can you guess what that group was? The Beatles. And what was their number one hit? No, that would be a few years later. I want to hold your hand, right? I want to hold your hand. So probably none of us have made such a misjudgment as big as that one with so many financial implications. But chances are good that uh, you misjudge someone or someone has misjudged you based on the wrong criteria. It's certainly the case with Samuel. Uh, we're going through uh, the Old Testament, and, and today we're going to look at chapters 16 and 17. And uh, what we learned last week is that Saul turns out to be a disaster. Now, on the surface, he appears to be the, the perfect king, as the first of, of Israel's king, somebody who could unite all the 12 tribes into this powerful monarchy. But we discovered that Saul's heart is far from God, and the man seems to have no character. And so God tells Samuel to go look for a new king. And, and chapter 16 begins with Samuel mourning over this news. He's heartbroken that Saul is is going to be removed. And part of that grief was, was caused by his love for Saul and his love for Saul's family, especially his son Jonathan. And I suspect that some of it was caused by his fear over what would now happen to his country. Uh, like most of us, Samuel had a hard time letting go of the past. You ever struggle with that? He had a hard time letting go of the era uh, of the judges in order to establish this new monarchy. He can't let go of Saul. I don't know about you, but I have a hard time sometimes. You know, I, I grow accustomed to ways of doing things and, and ways of thinking. You begin to develop this emotional attachment to them uh, long after their usefulness to us has passed. And yet we don't want to let it go. Uh, we'll even hold on to those things, you know, when God may be telling us it's time to change. It's time to let those things go. So um, God uh, gives a little love tap on, on, on uh, Samuel's hard head. He says, let him go. Let, let Saul go. And then God gives him his next mission. He says, says get out of bed. Dry off your tears. Um, get your anointing oil. I'm going to send you to Bethlehem to anoint the next king that I have chosen. And he does. And it's interesting to note um, in chapter 16, verse 4, that when the elders of Bethlehem uh, see them coming to their town, they're tr trembling, they're afraid. 
um, legendary Samuel, fierce and, uh, and famous Samuel. What had they done? Who had sinned that Samuel was coming to their town? I mean, Samuel wasn't exactly known for his casual drop-in visits. You know, Samuel wasn't really one who, you know, would stop in Starbucks and have a cup of coffee with you and some small talk. And so they're thinking, what terrible misdeed uh, has happened in Bethlehem requiring a prophetic visitation from Samuel? And so God gives a cover story. He says, take along a heifer and tell them it's a church festival. Everybody loves church festival and, and invite Jesse to the celebration. So anxiety gives way to anticipation. Everybody's saying, oh, don't worry. Don't worry, it's going to be a barbecue. Everything's going to be okay. And so arrangements are made. And then Samuel uh, calls Jesse, who's this local man living in Bethlehem, and his sons to join him at the, at the feast. And Samuel is impressed by the sons of Jesse. And he, took, he takes one look at the eldest son, Eliab, and he says to himself, of course, this has got to be the one that God has chosen. This is the one God has in mind to be the next king. I mean, he's tall, he's good looking, he's, he's strong, and he's athletic. He's a natural leader. But God says no. So Jesse calls his second son, Abinadab. He's the smart one in the family. He's got a Ph.D. in political science. He's traveled all over the world. He writes these brilliant essays for the Jerusalem Post. I mean, he's perfect. Who wouldn't want to have a, an intellectual giant for your leader? God says, no, this is not the one. So Jesse brings his third son, Shammah. Shammah is the popular son. He's Bethlehem's most eligible bachelor. He's charismatic. He's gregarious. He's an immaculate dresser. Sweater vest, most likely wore those on a regular basis. I mean, he's the one you want at your big social event. God says no. The beauty contest continues. The remaining four sons were not even told their names. They parade before Samuel, but none of these are God's chosen. And so Samuel is scratching his head. What in the world is God looking for? What am I missing? Any of these sons of Jesse would be an excellent choice to be our next leader. And then God whispers to Samuel these words. Do not look on his outward appearance or on the height of his stature. For the Lord sees not as mortals see. They look on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the, on the heart. Like Samuel, we get impressed by the things that we can see with the physical eyes. I mean, we live in a world, don't we, where physical beauty outranks spiritual depth every time, where success in business is defined purely by the bottom line, and where charisma wins over character, right? 
I mean, we vote more for our leaders by the images that their handlers can create on TV more than on their character, what kind of person they are. Now, don't get me wrong. There's nothing wrong with, with wealth, intelligence, and good looks. But I worry about the impact it has on our culture if that's all that we have to consider. In fact, this, this, this um, a focus on the outward appearance can actually harm our relationships. The Arizona State University a couple years ago did this study, and they discovered what they call the contrast effect. And here's their conclusion, is that we judge both our own and other people's attractiveness based on the social situation that we're in. So if a person of average looks enters a room of extremely good-looking people, they'll be perceived as less attractive than they actually are. And if that same person enters a room of less attractive people, they will be perceived as more attractive than they actually are. And these researchers found that this contrast effect influences many of us to devalue ourselves. I must not be worth anything. I don't measure up. I don't have what it takes. And that leaves a lot of us alone and yearning for superficial beauty instead of having real love with real people. You see, when we're bombarded by the media day after day, images of beautiful people, we begin to, to, to develop an expectation of attractiveness that is not realistic. In fact, Michael Levine, a Hollywood publicist, comments, he says this, he says, my exposure to extreme beauty has ruined my capacity to love the ordinary women of the real world, women who are more likely to meet my needs for deep connection and partnership of the soul. Uh, Halle Berry, selected by People magazine as one of the most beautiful women in the world, uh, says this. She says, beauty, let me tell you something. Being thought of as a beautiful woman has spared me nothing in life, no heartache, no trouble. She says, in fact, love for me has been difficult because beauty is essentially meaningless and it's always transitory. I can't believe what people do to themselves to make themselves look beautiful, the excess, and then they end up looking distorted. She said, worse, they still have that hole in their soul that led them to change themselves, their facial uh, appearance in the first place. It doesn't solve anything. Better yet, listen to what Brad Pitt had to say in, in an interview in Rolling Stone magazine. He says, I know all these things are supposed to be important to us, the car, the condo, our version of success. But if that's the case, why is the general feeling out there reflecting more impotence and isolation and desperation and loneliness? He says, if you ask me, I say, toss all of this. We've got to find something else. Because all I know is at this point in time, we are heading for a dead end, a numbing of the soul, a complete atrophy of the spiritual being. And I don't want that. He said, I'm the guy who's got it all. Listen how he finishes it. He says, but once you've got everything, then you're left with only yourself. You see, the church's purpose is not to help you become well-adjusted and well-to-do and a successful person. It's to help you deal with disappointment. It's to help you deal with illness. It's to help you deal with, with aging, you know. 
Every morning I get up and I look in the mirror. Oh, what happened during the night, you know? <laughs> to help you get back on your feet when life knocks you down. To help open your eyes to the dignity and the goodness of people, but also the dark side of us all. To help you find joy and meaning in life. That's the church's purpose. Well, Samuel says to Jesse, is this it? <laughs> is this all of your sons? And Jesse replies, oh yeah, there, there's one more. And, and he's out taking care of, of the sheep. I mean, he is so insignificant, this youngest son, that he has not even been invited to the party. And Jesse doesn't even name him. He just calls him the youngest. In the Hebrew, that literally means the runt. <laughs> David is the runt of the litter. But I guess if you had eight sons, it'd be easy to overlook one, wouldn't it? Maybe. So David's about 14 or 15 years of age, and he's brought to Samuel, and the Lord says to him immediately, this is the one. This is whom I've chosen. Anoint him to be the next king. I mean, David, at this point in his life, he's, he's the anti-Saul. He's the extreme opposite of all that, that Saul was. To Samuel and Jesse and, and his older brothers and probably to all who witnessed this event, David was the least likely person to become the next king. But verse 13 says something. It says, the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. What we discover, this is the theme throughout our, our story, this, this sermon series, is that while the world is impressed by big names and splashy headlines and, and name brands and, and star athletes, God is looking for something else. But God chooses the most ordinary people to do the most extraordinary things. And so he chose a, an aged, childless couple named Abraham and Sarah to be the father and mother of a new nation. That he chooses uh, Moses, a baby afloat on the Nile, uh, a murderer even, uh, to lead a motley band of, of exiles out of slavery in Egypt. I mean, look at, look at who Jesus chooses to be the leaders of his church, his first disciples. There's James and John. What's their nickname? Anybody remember their nickname? Sons of, Sons of Thunder. I mean, it sounds like a motorcycle gang or something. And, and at one point, they, they get so mad at a village that doesn't welcome them with open arms, they ask Jesus, hey, let's call down fire and burn them all up. Sound like the kind of homies that you were looking for? And then there's, there's Matthew. I mean, all his friends are a bunch of riffraffs and and then there's Peter, foul-mouthed, rough-hewn Peter who could barely make it a living as a fisherman. And then this lowly shepherd boy named David. Do you see a trend here? Do you see what God is up to? God always makes choices that, that surprise us. Listen to what the Apostle Paul writes in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He says, Consider your own call, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. What's he saying about the church in Corinth? You're a bunch of losers. 
You're nothing in the eyes of the world. But, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong so that nobody can boast in the presence of God. See, what Paul is saying here is that God is the central character in human history, not us. Well, we may think we are, but God is revealed as a God of grace and, 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 and power who has a particular place in his heart for the powerless. And so grace is all over the pages of the Bible. It's not David's actions that make him king. It's not David's good looks. It's not his charm. It's not his intelligence. It's not his popularity. It's not his charisma. It's not even David's great tan from being out in the field with the sheep all day long. Instead, God says this, I took you from the pastures, from following the sheep, to be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and I will make you into a great nation. That's all God's doing. God is a central character in all of this. God shatters all of our assumptions. God does the unheard of by taking ordinary people and doing the impossible through us. Which is good news for us today, isn't it? Because most of us here, we're ordinary people. And guess what? That makes us prime candidates for God to do something with us, to be used by God. If he can use Abraham and Sarah, if he can use Moses, if he can use a shepherd boy, if he can use a teenage girl, if he can use a, a carpenter, then he can use us. And wants to use us and will use us. Mark Laberton uh, was a pastor. He tells a story of a very difficult time in his life when finances were tight. And he was driving this old wreck of a car that had been donated to the church. Folks, once a car is donated to the church, okay, that's pretty bad. It, it, it's on its last legs. And he's, he's driving it, and it's got the, the, no shock absorbers and, and the ceiling uh, starting to come down on top of him, and the air conditioner is broken, and, and, and the car begins to speak to him. And the car says to Mark, failure. You're a failure. And he's thinking to himself, why can't I get my life together? I'm getting older every year. I've got a family. This car is humiliating. And it kept saying, failure. One day he drove to the airport to pick up his, his nieces. It was a very hot day. The air conditioner was broken, so he had all the windows down and, and vinyl flakes from the, from, from the dashboard. The dashboard had since crumbled and were blowing back in, in, into all, in, onto his nieces, covering them. And so after he dropped them off, he, he went to the car lot and, and he, he leased a, a brand new car. He, he didn't have the money for it, but... He just traded in that old car, and he leased a no, new one. He's feeling so good. No, no fly, flakes, no drooping ceiling, no, no broken shock absorbers, an air conditioner that works. And, and he was thrilled. He loved this new car. He felt so good in it. But then this car began to speak to him, and it kept saying the word fraud. Fraud. 
He was no more put together. He was no more successful with this new car than he was with the old car. It just looked better. And Mark felt like a fake. You see, I think sometimes our lives kind of swing back and forth between those two words, between failure and fraud. And what I've learned to do in my life here is to not listen to either one of them, but to choose to listen to what God says. You see, I, I, I think I'm not as bad as my critics accuse me of being, but I'm not as good as I like to think that I am. I'm someplace in between. And if we will listen, we'll hear the voice of God, and he will say to us, I want you, and I love you, and I'm going to use you. See, we're chosen by God for his purposes. Against all probabilities and, and, and despite the opinions of our despite the opinions of our family, and despite the opinions of our friends, and despite the opinions of the world, God has a plan for each and every one of us. Well, chapter 16 ends with David being introduced in the Saul's court. Verse 14 says, The Spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul. And so Saul begins to slow downward spiral into darkness, but he discovers that when David plays his music on, on the lyre, that it cheers him up, that the evil spirit harassing him leaves in the presence of this young man playing his music. And so he keeps, he keeps David near him. Chapter 17 begins with a, a new battle brewing. Saul's army is in a standoff with their perpetual enemy, the Philistines. And, and all of us know this story. We all know this story. Even if you were never raised in church, even if you never opened the Bible, we all know this story. And, and there's a reason why this story follows. This is, this is chapter 17. There's a reason why it follows chapter 16. Chapter 16 gives us the principle that what matters is what's in the inside. Chapter 17 proves it beyond a shadow of a doubt. See, David's about 18 years old. And he's sent by his father to, to check on his brothers who are serving in Saul's army. And when he arrives, this giant named Goliath is dominating the scene. He's nearly 10 feet tall. He carries this 25-pound spear with careless ease. He is completely intimidating, and everybody is completely terrified on the battlefield. And the soldiers who treat Goliath as important, they treat David as unimportant, as insignificant. I mean, the men, the soldiers, they look at Goliath and they're in complete awe. And they turn around, they look at David, and they laugh. Why? Because everybody on the battlefield that day was judging according to outward appearances. Everybody except David. Because he enters this battlefield with a God-dominated life. It didn't matter to him that Goliath had the advantage. It didn't matter that Goliath's armor probably outweighed David dripping wet. He couldn't believe that everybody was cowering before this infidel giant. Weren't these the Israelites enlisted in God's army? Why in the world should they be a fear of this stupid giant? Well, Saul sees what's about to happen, and he offers David his, his armor. Here, at least take my armor. This might give you a little bit of protection. And, and, and David puts it on, but he can't even walk in it. It's so, it's so heavy. It's so awkward. 
And so he takes it off. You ever tried to be somebody you're not? Ever tried to wear somebody else's armor? Doesn't work very well, does it? Be who God created you to be, folks. Be who God created you to be. And so David is wise. He takes off Saul's armor and he walks out into the valley with nothing but the gifts that God had gave him and trained him for, his sling. And, and he stops just for a moment at the, at, the, at the stream there. And he picks up five smooth stones and he puts them into his shepherd's bag. And when Goliath sees David coming out to meet him on the battlefield, he's insulted. He banters mockingly. Oh, am I a dog that you come out with me with a stick? And he belches out Philistine curses across the valley that today he's going to kill this young whippersnapper. Is that word still used today, whippersnapper? And David replies with an absolute calmness and trust and faith because he knows this battle is won before it even begins. And he announces it with absolute certainty to the giant. He says, this very day, the Lord is going to deliver you into my hands. And then suddenly David is running, not away from the giant, but towards the giant. And this takes everybody by surprise. In fact, David's brothers, they can't believe their eyes. Their little baby brother embarrassing them in front of everybody. And King Saul, he, he, he's watching David too, and he's, he's worrying that his young musician, his young servant is, is going to commit suicide. And Goliath, he, he stops in absolute shock. He's never seen this before. He's never seen somebody running towards him. They're always running away from him. He can't believe what's happening. This moment is so without precedent, and it occurs so quickly that no one quite knows what is, is happening except David. Two, three swings. He releases the stone. It finds its mark in the middle of Goliath's head. It stuns him. He falls to the ground, and in a moment, he is dead. And nobody expected that outcome, most of all Goliath. Well, no one except David. Not because he trusted in himself, but because he trusted in a big God. See, at that moment, David knew that outward appearances didn't matter a hill of beans. That what mattered was what was on the inside. And I imagine that every single person on the battlefield that day walked away with that one thing. That what matters is what's in here. Well, you probably know the rest of the story. Saul grows increasingly jealous of David, chases him into the wilderness, tries several times to kill him. Finally comes to an end during a battle with the Philistines. Saul is surrounded by enemy troops. David's not there. He's badly wounded. He takes his own life rather than to be captured alive. His reign as king is pretty much a disaster. First Judah, then all the tribes of Israel come to David and they ask him to serve as their king. 
Fifteen years after Samuel anoints him, David is crowned at the age of 30. He unites the tribes, and his 40-year reign is the pinnacle of the spiritual life of the nation. 3,000 years later, the symbol of Judaism is still the star of David. Friends, we've got to find some other criteria besides our outward appearances. We're going to leave a legacy behind to our friends, to our family, to our children and our grandchildren. Guess what? It's got to be more than your charm. It's got to be more than your wit. It's got to be more than, than, than your good looks or your intelligence. Because one of these days... And me, sooner than most of you here, are going to be dead. And I'm not going to take any of those things with me. What's going to be our legacy? You see, the way to happiness is this. We've got to embed this into our hearts. And then we've got to embed it into the hearts of our children and our grandchildren by helping them to see and to use their God-given gifts and talents that they have been given by God to see that God has a place for them in this world. So you and I, the pressure is enormous. You and I, we've got to live it. And we've got to model it. And we've got to show this world that there is a different way. Because the Lord, he sees not as mortals see. We look on the outward appearances. But the Lord looks on what? The heart. Let's pray. Oh God, we need a, uh, a transformation. We need a change. We need a cultural shift. And God, it's not going to happen unless we, the people of God, make it so. God, help us each and every day to live it, to model it, to show our family and our friends, to show our fellow church members that those gifts from God are what's important, that everything else is transitory. Everything else is even illusion. Nothing else is going to last past the grave. But the thing that will last, oh God, is what's inside. It's our character, those things that really matter. Come, Holy Spirit. Come. God, we want more of you here. We want to surrender ourselves to you. God, we want you to be first and foremost. Help us to take our place among those ordinary people of the world. Help us to see that you want to do extraordinary things through us. Come, Holy Spirit changes from the inside out.